Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. But then came astonishingly violent earthquakes and floods. And on one terrible day and night, all the warriors of Athens vanished beneath the earth. And out in the ocean, the island of Atlantis sank beneath the waves and disappeared utterly. And this is the reason why the sea in that region is now impassable. And it is impossible for any navigator to make his way across it. For there is thick mud just below the surface that impedes the progress of any ship, the rubble left by the island as it subsided. So Tom Holland, that is friend of the rest is history, Plato. Is he? He's been he's been elevated. What a friend to have. What a friend to have. Not merely uh, a leading philosopher, I think it's fair to say. The greatest, I think. Some would say the greatest. He's the author of Timaeus. And it's from Timaeus that that reading comes. So Plato is the first person to really mention Atlantis. I mean, absolutely. You know, not really. I mean, he, he absolutely he is the first person to mention right. it. <laughs> and um, you explained in the first episode how you think he's using Atlantis as a kind of political and cultural kind of metaphor, as a shorthand, reflecting on Athens's position at the end of the Peloponnesian War, Athens's relationship with Sparta, with its own history, its politics, yeah. um, his, uh, his anxiety about the form of government. Um, that is now running Athens. It's, and it's the first, I think it's the first parody of, of, of works of history. Yeah. So very exciting for us. But that's not a view that is held uh, by most Atlantis enthusiasts, chief among them. I, I, I'm not going to describe him as a friend of the rest of his history. Uh, he's a friend of Netflix. And he is... Um, <laughs> Well, he's the father of the commissioner of documentaries on Netflix, isn't he? I think. He is, yes. Graham Hancock. He's Graham Hancock, the author of, I don't know, what they call Magicians of the Gods or whatever those books are called, in which Atlantis plays a very big part. And we started the first episode by talking about Graham Hancock, and I'm sure we'll return to Graham Hancock, because Plato comes up with the idea of Atlantis. And as you said last time, it's sort of, you know, people are banding it around for a few centuries, and, and many of them don't think Plato means it seriously as a sort of ge- a genuine, literal geographical description. Yeah. But there's a point at which Atlantis disappears from the conversation, isn't there, in the medieval period, and then it reappears. Why do you think it reappears? Because, um, as I say, the myth begins with Plato, and it's Plato who gives us really the two definitive accounts. But Plato, because he's writing in Greek, his writings are lost, actually, ironically, pretty much apart from the Timaeus, but almost all his other writings are lost in the Middle Ages. And it's only with the rediscovery of, of Greek learning in the Renaissance that Plato's dialogues start to um, reappear in Latin Christendom. This is why over the course of the 16th century, people become more and more familiar with the idea of Atlantis. Right. And the idea of Atlantis that we have at the moment, we think of it as being ancient Greek, but I think it would be better to say that it's at least as modern as it is ancient. Okay. Because as the understanding of it evolves over the centuries since the Renaissance, it tells us an awful lot about the obsessions and the paranoias and the yearnings of modern Europe. Yeah. Um, and the way that those have evolved over time. So it, it, and I know I often use this phrase, but it does hold a, an intriguing mirror up 
to evolving cultural and political trends in Western Europe. So in a way, this episode is not merely a sequel to the episode we did um, about Plato and Atlantis, but it's also a companion piece to the episodes we did about Columbus, isn't it? If you haven't listened to our episodes about Christopher Columbus, we did a four-part series. And at the beginning, we talked about how Columbus's head was full of all this stuff that he had read about strange islands out in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Marco Polo, of course, has gone off to Cathay, and Columbus has read that. Um, People are debating if there's a, a legendary island called Brazil out there somewhere across the North Atlantic. Um, there might be sort of strange folk memories of, of Greenland or of uh, Newfoundland, the, um, the Viking colony there. Yeah. So do you think Atlantis is revived as part of that sort of package? I mean, again, we mentioned this at the end of the last episode. What, what is intriguing is that Atlantis is actually the dog that doesn't bark in the story of Columbus. He doesn't mention it. Yeah. But I think what happens, so there, there are various ways in which Plato's story is reinterpreted. And one of the ways in which it's reinterpreted, I think, is a direct result of the discovery of America. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the idea that there are survivors. So Plato says that the whole island sinks. He, he doesn't mention survivors. But when people get to America and they're trying to work out what it is, it isn't long before people are referencing Plato and thinking, well, maybe either this is Atlantis, obviously that's a problem because Plato says that it sunk, or that there were survivors from Atlantis and they contributed towards the civilizations that people are finding um, in the new world. And that, of course, is very Graham Hancock, the idea that there is a lost kind of um, sort of uh, clan of, of, of experts. Yeah. I mean, that's basically the thesis of his stuff. Yes, so the idea that Atlantis is an advanced civilization superior to the peoples of, of both America and Europe and Asia and Africa, and that essentially it's the people of Atlantis who have instructed these less civilized peoples in the arts of civilization, an absolutely key theme. Plato never said that they were more Plato never discusses that, never yeah. mentions that. So I think that that is absolutely expressive of an attempt by people in Europe to work out, you know, who on earth are these people that we've found? Yeah. So you have this guy who's a historian of Cortez's expedition. Mm-hmm. I called Francisco Lopez de Gomara. Yes. Have you, have you come across him? In I the- have, Tom, because I'm writing a children's book about the um, conquest of Mexico right now. So uh, Gomara is in my thoughts all the time. He was Cortez's secretary. Um, he went with Cortez, so much later in life, not content with toppling the Aztecs, Cortez just went on an expedition to Algeria. And he never went to America, did he? So Gamara never went to the America. He never went to the New World. And, and his account of Cortez's life is generally seen as a complete and utter hagiography. Sort of, you know, Cortez's, he sees Cortez as the epitome of gallantry and chivalry. And Cortez is credited with all these sort of incredibly far-sighted decisions, which most historians now say, Gamara is is talking nonsense. But Gamara is one of those sort of viewpoints we have into the Mexica, the Aztec civilization. And I see from your notes, Gamara is one of these people who says, well, the, where did the Aztecs come from? They had migrated from a place called Aztlan. Yeah. And Aztecs means people from Aztlan. Yeah. And we now think when we had Camilla Townsend on, to, on our podcast, and she was talking about this, the author of the brilliant book, Fifth Son, about the Aztecs. People now think, don't they, that the Aztecs migrated, the Mexica migrated overland from what's now New Mexico or Colorado or thereabouts. And, and if there was an Aztlan, some sort of folk memory of a starting point, it was there. But Gamara thinks it could be Atlantis, brilliantly. Well, because there is a certain phonetic resemblance, isn't there? I suppose so. You know, if you stand on your head and close your eyes and... Yeah. Aztlan, Atlantis, I mean, kind of. So, so here's the thing. The Aztec mythology is all about islands and lakes because of course they end up in Tenochtitlan which is Mexico City which is an island and a lake so there's an island and it's not completely unreasonable that if you're sitting around in 16th century Spain you hear about these people who do have an impressive civilization who've come from an island and left and now migrated somewhere else and you might think ah there you go yeah okay so this is where this kind of begins and then there's um another guy who's the bishop the bishop of the Yucatan Diego de Landa, who is um, much cursed both by the mayor and by historians of the yeah. mayor because he basically destroyed all the Mayan records. He did what all historians secretly <laughs> want to do. He made notes on the, on the Mayan sources. And then got rid of all the primary sources. destroyed them so nobody else could ever read them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, um, but he, uh, among all the notes, he reports um, 
a story that supposedly is told by the mayor that their ancestors had come from a land in the east. Right. Which, I mean, essentially, it, it depends on scripts. He wasn't really qualified to decipher, I gather. Right. And they could, he could have been talking about Cozumel, which is an island off the coast of the Yucatan. Um, well, he could, Mr. Skeptic. He yeah, could. He but could. equally, he could have been talking about Atlantis. Oh, right. <laughs> you want to keep that open as a possibility, <laughs> do you, Tom? <laughs> what I'm, all I'm saying is that the evidence here is stacking up. Right. Aslan, islands out in, out in the east. Hold on, they can't both be, uh, they can't both be Atlantis. Surely. Yeah, they can. Yeah, well, you can say that both the Aztecs and the mayor come from Atlantis. Basically, everyone comes from Atlantis. That, that's not the maddest claim we'll be hearing on this podcast. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so so that's, that's one theme, the idea that there are survivors and that they might have colonized in various reaches of of the continents that have survived. The other idea, which is kind of implicit in that, is that Atlantis is a kind of utopia. It's a model of high civilization, which isn't at all what Plato says. I mean, Plato makes it out to be a a fabulously wealthy and sophisticated place, but it gets destroyed because it's hubristic, because it is um, launching imperial invasions everywhere. Plato is absolutely not saying that it's it's, um, a model to be followed. In fact, just the opposite. It's, I think it's his kind of par- it's, it's a kind of fusion of the Persian Empire and um, democratic Athens. And yeah. Plato isn't really keen on either of them, but particularly in England. So there's a, Thomas More writes about utopia, yeah. this idea that there is a kind of perfect realm. Which is exactly that, that time, by the way, it's 1516. So it's exactly the moment yes. when they're discovering yes. Mexico and the Maya and all that stuff. And that idea of a kind of a land where if you find it, you will have the model of a perfect realm. Then gets picked up by Francis Bacon. Yes. Who you will admire, Dominic, as the man who basically invents science. Yeah, the inventor of Lord uh, Viscount St. Albans. He writes a book called The New Atlantis, um, which is actually a novel. So it's a kind of didactic novel. Right. It's not particularly exciting, not great characterization. It's not the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> it's not the Da Vinci Code. But it gives a kind of portrait of this island that supposedly is in the Pacific and it's become Christian. It's I think they got converted by St. Thomas. But the key thing is, is that it's full of people who we now would call scientists. Oh, yeah. People who, who live by reason, who um, do experimentation, which Francis Bacon was very into. Bacon says that they embody generosity, enlightenment, dignity and splendor, piety and public spirit. And actually, this kind of model of a community of high-minded people interested in the natural world goes on to serve as one of the inspirations of the Royal Society. What an amazing thing that this novel about uh, an island of scientists inspires the Royal Society, which itself then inspires the island of scientists in Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, it just goes round and round and round. Yeah, amazing. So that's another part of the element. And the other thing, which again is implicit in uh, Francis Bacon's idea that Atlantis could exist in the Pacific, is that the location of Atlantis, it's moving around all over the place. I mean, just to reiterate, Plato is very clear where Atlantis was. It was beyond the Pillars of Hercules, in other words, the Straits of Gibraltar, so in the ocean that comes to be called the Atlantic after Atlantis. Yeah. But Plato's obviously got it wrong if it's actually America or if it's in the Pacific. And what you start to see as a kind of nationalism starts to develop, so this is, this is before the kind of heyday of romantic nationalism, but the absolutely classic example of this is a guy called Alaus Rudbeck in the late 17th century, who was the rector of the University of Uppsala. Mm. Uh, and he does very detailed research into Atlantis. Research. What's his, what does this research consist of, well, Tom? So, so where do you, so he's in Uppsala in Sweden. Where, where do you think he ends up saying that Atlantis was, Dominic? Finland? I don't know. Maybe it's the island of Gotland, Tom, which we've talked about in the podcast before. It's Sweden. Oh, it is Sweden. Where do you think the rector of the University of Uppsala locates the capital of Atlantis? Oh my God, it's Uppsala. The capital of Atlantis was Uppsala. Amazing, but true. <laughs> Hold on, but it's not an island. That to me, to me is it's, the... Uh... It's, that's the detail. An absolute detail, as we will see. So, And does he genuinely say he genuinely thinks this? I think he does, yeah. And he proves it, you know, in very learned tome. Okay. Have you read it? No, I haven't. Well... Let that not put us off. So, Dominic, those are the cons- basically the constituent elements. There are, there are survivors. Atlantis is a home of superior civilization. Yeah. And basically, the location of the island itself is a very movable feast. But those, so those examples you've given us, they're all slightly different, aren't they? So the Spanish guys in the 16th century, I mean, they can be forgiven for thinking anything because they're discovering new things all the time. They, you know, it's easy for us to sort of mock and say, ha-ha, they thought that Atlantis was, you know, Colorado or something. Oh, I mean, Columbus thought Cuba was China. Right. It's, it's not a terrible 
said no. to say that <laughs> I don't know the no. Aztec Empire was Atlantis. I mean, they don't know what we know. They're discovering stuff. It's yeah. completely reasonable. Francis Bacon is using it as Thomas More was using Utopia. Yeah. He's using it as a political parable. The fellow from Sweden, he's probably the first example, I suppose, is he of the sort of the slightly cranky conspiracy yeah, theorist so. who's who's basically hit on something that will you know make him look good and presumably his university yeah it's i mean essentially he's um he's drawing on you know he's taking words that sound a little bit like swedish you know right. the greek but words i mean what words well, oh, i don't know i haven't read it yeah it's a bit like the um the da vinci code stuff that you have you have your idea you want it to be sweden and then essentially you just look for anything that might support that. Yeah, of course. That's how you do it. So these kind of three elements are bubbling away over the course of the 18th into the 19th century. And there are various iterations of it that draw on kind of one or other of these various aspects. But the absolutely definitive account comes from a guy who is essentially second only to Plato in terms of um, <laughs> inventing Atlantis. Yeah. And this is a guy called Ignatius Donnelly. Yeah. Who is um he's a great character. He's of Irish stock, American lawyer, ends up Republican congressman for Minnesota. Yeah. W- were you aware of him? Uh, I knew yes, because he was the vice presidential candidate of the Populist Party in uh nineteen hundred. He's a he's a really interesting guy. He's Irish, as you say, but unlike a lot of Irish sort of politicians in the nineteenth century, he ends up in the Republican Party, anti slavery, he's pro women's suffrage. So he's quite progressive by and large. Um, so, you know, his record during the Civil War, for example, his political record is pretty impressive. I read that he he lived in the same place as me when I lived in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, so no wonder you came across him then. Well, I think it's just his name is sort of hanging around in late 19th century American politics. However, he's a sort of eccentric character because at one point he tried to set up a utopian community. Yeah. In Minnesota. In in Ninninga, which I don't think worked out no. at all. And when you look through his list of publications, so among other things, he wrote a big book about Francis Bacon writing Shakespeare. Yes. Called The, called the Great Cryptogram. Yes. Which perhaps gives you some a sense of its scholarly worth. He wrote a book called um, Ragnarok, The Age of Fire and Gravel. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the sequel to Atlantis. So, so basically, we would not be talking about him. I don't think anyone would really remember him outside specialists, perhaps in yeah. late 19th century American politics. If he had not, in 1882, published a book called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. So Antediluvian before the flood. Mm. And he very potently mixes these kind, you know, he, he's drawing on Plato, but he's also mixing these kind of very various early modern traditions. So he's massively into the idea that essentially civilization as we understand it is seeded by survivors from atlantis yeah his proposition is he's got a number of propositions about atlantis one of which is that the gods and goddesses of the ancient greeks the phoenicians the hindus and the scandinavians were simply the kings queens and heroes of atlantis and that's just in- intrinsically ridiculous isn't it <laughs> I mean, all of them well it's the euhemerist idea yeah this theory put forward by greek called euhemerus that the gods were mortal kings who had, over the course of the decades and centuries, had come to be elevated into the heavens in people's memories. But I mean, that's a hell of a lot of gods. Yeah, it is. The Scandinavians, yes. the Hindus, the Greeks. I mean, I think what he's doing there is, this is an age when people are becoming increasingly interested in kind of comparative mythology, and people are drawing up lists of pantheons, and he's he's kind of working out parallels. I mean, you can see, you know, the Greeks, the Hindus, Scandinavians, they're all Indo-European, so that's an, another idea that is very current. Um, and he's saying that the similarities between these various pantheons are to be explained by the fact that they all came from Atlantis. And then he chucks in the Phoenicians who are, who are not Indo-European mm. just for fun. Um, he argues that there are two places in particular that preserve the original religion of Atlantis, and yeah. they are Egypt and Peru. But which have different religions, Tom? Well. And that would seem to be the flaw in his reasoning. Well, uh, you may say that. Yeah. I, I, I think the argument is that scholars have inadequately appreciated the degree to which they were actually the same. <laughs> so this is another theme, is that people who write about books about Atlantis are often self-educated in the subject and have a deep contempt for hidebound academics. Of course. So this is another theme yeah. that will be yeah. coming up. The mainstream up. academic establishment yes. is, is squashing, is censoring the truth about the religions of Egypt and Peru. Okay, fine. Yes. Um, he's saying that that um, in Europe, the, both the Bronze and the Iron Ages, 
Um, they have their origins in settlers coming from Atlantis. He's arguing that it's not just America that is being colonized, so is Europe. Right. So they wouldn't have learned ironworking or bronze working without settlers from the Atlantic. Metallurgy is not my strong point, so I can't be skeptical about that. What about alphabets? So he's saying that both the Mayan and the Phoenician alphabets come from Atlantis. Again, surely very different alphabets, are they? Uh, I honestly don't know about the Mayan alphabet. I'd be very surprised if it was anything like the Phoenician alphabet. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if there are any, any specialists in, in Maya out there, they could advise on whether this is in any way a plausible theory. Yeah. Um, and he argues that basically after the, uh, the destruction of Atlantis, that a few survivors escape on, on ships, that they are carried you know, across, across the ocean to both America and to um, Africa and, and Europe, and that it's this that explains the kind of universal story of the flood that Donnelly says is to be found pretty much everywhere from uh, basically from the Pacific to the Caspian. Yeah. There is a universal legend of the flood, isn't there? Well, it's not entirely universal, but I mean, it's a very common one. It's very common. Yeah. yeah. Occam's razor is just, you know, people, they're like, the idea of floods. Yeah. I, I would say. Yeah. Anyway. So that's one aspect of it. Then there's the idea that you, that you get from Francis Bacon, that it's, um, that it's a utopia. And the, the reason why this colonization is significant is because um, Atlantis, Donnelly says, is where basically humans first rose from a state of savagery and barbarism to attain civilization. I mean, this is kind of the Graham Hancock thesis, isn't it? In his, It's absolutely the Graham Hancock thesis. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's totally the Graham Hancock thesis. Um, the only difference between the Graham Hancock thesis and Ignatius Donnelly's is that Donnelly does think that, the, um, that Atlantis had been in the Atlantic. Yeah. So um, he thinks Plato was onto something, that Plato was right to identify that it was beyond well, the pillars of Hercules. I mean, to be fair to him, since our only source for the Atlantis story is Plato, and Plato is very specific about where it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, he's, he's, um, he's acknowledging that Plato got that right. So he's obsessed by the idea of different races. Yeah. He's, he's very kind of into that. Well, he's writing in 1882, so that's obviously in the ether, isn't it? He's Irish. <laughs> and so he does basically think that the, the, the Atlanteans are Irish. Golly, what an amazing coincidence. <laughs> So he says that the, the people from Atlantis were red, they had red hair and blue eyes. How can he possibly know? And probably, I mean, probably freckles, it wouldn't surprise me. And probably went bright red in the sun. Oh my, I mean. They're, essentially, they're Irish. This is the thing with all these conspiracy theory explanations. I would have much more time for them if he, if he said, to my amazement, they turned out to be Belgian. Or, <laughs> you know, or if he'd sort of said, as an Irishman, it pains well, me to admit it, but they turned out to be English or something. But to always say, and it happens to be Uppsala, <laughs> whatever. But there's a tension there because he wants them to be Irish, but at the same time, he wants them to have settled all across, you know, Europe and Asia and, and America. Yeah. So he's very keen on the idea that Atlantis is the original orange point for the Euro Indo-Europeans and for the Semitic peoples as he describes them. Um, so that's how the Phoenicians and the Greeks and everybody come to get there. You know, they're, they're interested in these right. um, ancient peoples and yeah. mistake them for gods. But he, he also has to explain how they came to be an American, how they came to influence America. So he describes Atlantis as being a bridge of land where the white, dark, and red races meet. So actually, although there's a kind of slight element of uh, blowing the trumpet for Aryans and specifically mm. Irish people, he is also, the logic of his own argument obliges him to accept that Atlantis was a place where as he puts it, white, dark, and red races meet. Well, that would, ma that would match his own political proclivities, Tom, because Donnelly yes. was a Republican, anti-slavery Republican, yes. who had you know, been very sort of pro-reconstruction and all that sort of thing. So, right. And so the stereotype of people who are obsessed by mad myths of Atlantis is that they're white supremacist. Mm -hmm. um, they're very in, kind of into the idea that Quetzalcoatl you know, the story that it, it's a folk memory of Atlantis, a white man with a beard coming and bring, bringing civilization. That's definitely a part of the mix, but it's not the only part. So Donnelly argues that the early Egyptians seem to have portrayed themselves as, as being red. So if you think of those kind of, you know, the paintings, yeah. Egyptians are often portrayed as red. Uh, and he says that this is because they came from America. So the founders of ancient Egypt are Native American. Right. Um, and he looks at the great Olmec heads in Central America, mm. and he says that these clearly look African. So, this Olmec civilization was founded by people, from settlers, colonizers from ultimately from Africa. So, there's a lot of cross fertilization going on, according to Donnelly. He would fit in very well. He could be a you know a modern museum curator or something, Tom. 
and he would go down very well. Well, would he? Uh, so we will come to this perhaps in part two, because um, I think we should call a, call a halt. Call a halt here. When we come back, we'll have a look at um, how this idea of Atlantis as the antediluvian civilization, how it got kind of recalibrated in the 20th century in often very dark ways. Right. But before I go, I will read a comment by uh, a French scholar, Thomas Henri Martin, in his studies on Plato's Timaeus, which he published in 1841, with his perspective on all this. Many scholars, he wrote, setting sail in quest of Atlantis with a more or less heavy cargo of erudition, but without any compass except their imagination and caprice, have voyaged at random. And where have they landed? In Africa, in America, in Australia, in Spitsbergen, in Sweden, in Sardinia, in Palestine, in Athens, in Persia, and in Ceylon, they say. That's like a list of Graham Hancock's locations, Tom. Severy. Okay, we'll see you after the break for um, more Atlantis. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, we've been talking Atlantis. We talked about Plato. We talked about uh, Gomara, the biography of Cortez. We talked about Francis Bacon. And now, Tom, I believe we're about to talk about the Nazis. Is that correct? Well, Dominic, as you will know, one of the kind of organizations that fed into the Nazis was the Thule Society. Yeah, yeah. Thule. We, we talked about them a lot. They were very runish. You know, they were interested in swastikas and you know, kind of esoteric stuff in, in Bavaria, weren't they? Yeah. In, in the 90, late 1910s, early 1920s. So Thule was the, um, it, it was the, the island that lay up furthest north, Ultima Thule, the Romans called it. And could that not, that's Iceland, is it? Is that Iceland? That's the thinking? It's been variously been thought to be Britain or Shetland or Iceland or Greenland or America or whatever. But not Atlantis? It, it comes to be equated with Atlantis by very radical German nationalists. Right. Who, drawing on, uh, on, on Donnelly, come to see it as the homeland of the, of the Aryans, the Indo-Europeans. And obviously they have the problem that if it's out in the Atlantic, that's no good. They need it to be somewhere nearer to, um, <laughs> to Germany. Right. And so they start to develop two, basically two mad ideas. The first is that essentially it was in the North Sea. So whether this is a kind of echo of Doggerland or whatever, I don't know. Yeah. They're kind of into that idea. And the other is that, um, Donnelly had hyped up the Atlanteans as having super advanced technology, but for, for the Nazis, the technology is off the scale. And actually, that what they're doing there, they're drawing on the work of um, another hugely influential American on this myth, a guy called Edgar Case, who was known as the Sleeping Prophet, who was a guy who, whenever he went to sleep, he would have visions. So, yeah, it's a clairvoyant. Yeah, well, this goes all the way back to when he was um, when he was uh, doing school, and he he couldn't you know, he hadn't done his spellings properly. And so his father walloped him and he ran to bed sobbing. And then an angel came in the night and taught him his spelling. And when he woke up, he could do it perfectly. And this angel kept appearing to him over the course of his life. And he came up with all kinds of, well, kind of mad stuff. Um, he could diagnose you in your sleep. I'm just reading it now. Yeah. He was, he was struck in the cockings during a school football game, began to act strangely. While asleep, he diagnosed his own injury and 
prescribed a cure which worked. And since then, when, whenever you went to see him, something was wrong with you. He would go to sleep right. so, and, and get a vision of, your, of what to do. Wow. And so his, his visions kind of went on quite a long way from how to stop sports injuries. A bit like um, Don Lee, I mean, a bit like everybody, he's obsessed by races. So he's obsessed with the idea that there are different races born at different times. So there's the white, the black, the brown, the yellow, the red races. And he's obsessed by Atlantis. And he says, uh, again, intriguingly, that the Atlanteans were the red races. So they were the Native Americans. And he says as well that they'd solved the energy crisis by developing crystals and that these crystals um, had sunk beneath the uh, the waves when Atlantis plunged beneath, you know, got destroyed. And that this is what explains the Bermuda Triangle. This is a popular theory. That's where the crystals are. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that's why ships vanish and planes and things. Um, yeah. And Case also predicted that um, these crystals would be rediscovered by the by the United States in 1958. Golly, that's precise. Were they? <laughs> doesn't doesn't seem so. He he had a lot of very big name celebrity clients. Yeah, he did because of his dream vision. So Woodrow Wilson was one, and uh, a very much not a friend of the rest is history. Top murderer Thomas Edison. Yes, that's one. Yes. So we discussed Edison murdering Louis Le Prince yes. in a previous episode. But a thing that had not previously occurred to me was that he could have, Case might have been involved with that in some mysterious way. Well, there's a whole novel waiting to be written there, isn't there? Because even though Case was then a child, it was when he was a child that he was being visited by angels and doing a lot of his coccyx kind of diagnosing work. I think it's coccyx, Dominic. It is coccyx, yeah, it is coccyx. <laughs> it's just, um, I'm, not, I'm not really, a, I'm not a medical man. No, no, you've never, you've never pretended otherwise. No, unlike Edgar Case, actually. Yeah, interestingly, yes. one of the things we don't have. Yeah. One. Yeah. Anyway, so all this kind of stuff about crystals, superpowers, all this kind of thing fuses in Germany before and after the First World War with ideas that Atlantis might actually have been in the North Sea. And although Hitler himself, to give Hitler credit, right, not a phrase you often hear on, no, but to give him credit, he thought this was all mad. So he had no time for Atlantis being, you know the homeland of the German people. Mm-hmm. But, but um, Rudolf Hess was very into it. Uh, Alfred Rosenberg was very into it. Himmler, inevitably, I mean, he was all over it. And uh, during the war, he was very disappointed that the state of war meant that he couldn't launch um, deep sea explorations. In the North Sea. In the North Sea. So I think had they won the war, he would have, it would have been great for, for the archaeology of Doggerland. Yes. Obviously, it would have been terrible in all kinds of other ways. But yes. <laughs> It's important <laughs> that you point that out, Tom. <laughs> But if you uh, if you're a fan of archaeology of the, of the Doggerland, Himmler would have ploughed billions of Reichsmarks into excavating it. That's very much that's this is very Man in the High Castle, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, have you seen that the the, the adaptation of the Philip K. Dick novel? I mean, I'm surprised they didn't work this in. But that tells you about Atlantis, doesn't it? It's to do with crystals, clairvoyance, sort of strange mythological science, which is all in the air in the late 19th, early 20th century. Yeah. But the Nazis, obviously, are, are having none of this idea that you get from a case that the Atlanteans were Native Americans or that you get in Ignatius Donnelly, that it's a, it's a melting pot for red, white, and black races. Right. No, I mean, they're very into races, but there's only one race in Atlantis, and that's the white race and specifically the Aryan race. Yeah. And so that makes the whole Atlantis story suddenly seem incredibly sinister in the wake of the war. Yeah. And so that means that in the wake of the, of the Second World War, the Atlantis myth, Although its popularity remains, I mean, there are endless kind of books being written about it. I'm sure you probably read them as, as a child. I mean, I was, I was fascinated. Oh, God, I was fascinated by Atlantis when I was about 10 yeah. or something. Yeah, absolutely. And it's inspired all kinds, you know, Man from Atlantis, we mentioned, and all, all kinds of things like that. Yeah. Often for scholars, it seems quite sinister. The story seems quite sinister because they're aware of, of where it led. And the idea that, you know, you can be interested in Atlantis and then suddenly become a white supremacist right. becomes quite an important idea but i think the kind of the inherent fascination of the myth is such that even academics even kind of archaeologists even very distinguished scholars have been unable to resist its allure and if the the kind of the nazi reinterpretation of atlantis is the most notorious perhaps the most convincing explanation is one that um, also emerged um, in the early years of the 20th century when uh, Arthur Evans, the English archaeologist, discovered what he came to call Minoan civilization. So an ancient civilization on Crete that had not previously been suspected. Yeah. People, I'm sure, you know, been on holiday to Crete, been to Knossos, all that kind of stuff. I was about to say, 
He's the guy who basically created Knossos and claimed it was authentic. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've got a book on Knossos that's kind of the opening line is to the effect of the Bronze Age Palace of Knossos is one of the most striking modernist buildings. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so he basically invents it. But there's this idea that it's a highly sophisticated civilization, lots of ships, um, that it establishes what Thucydides called a thalassocracy. Um, under King Minos, um, so an empire of the sea, yeah. uh, which is all very Atlantis. And there are lots of frescoes of um, people jumping bulls that were found. And um, the Atlanteans are supposed to have had a particular relationship with the bull, right. because Poseidon, uh, who is the, the forefather of the Atlantean kings, yeah. his sacred animal was the bull. So it all kind of seems to connect together. And then one of the archaeologists who proposes this, a Greek archaeologist called Spiridon Marinatos, he then goes to an island called Santorini, which in ancient times was called Thera, which there had clearly been an absolutely massive volcanic explosion there. Um, so much so that the kind of the, the middle of the island is just gone. It's yeah. a kind of circle round a bay. caldera, isn't it? The crater. Yeah. yeah. And he um, excavates a site there called um, Akrotiri. And again, he finds all kinds of freezes of teeming harbors, ships, all this kind of stuff. And he thinks this is very, very Atlantis. Mm. And this is the kind of academically acceptable version of the myth. But this is so well known. This is what you see in the rough guide to yeah. Santorini. Or you, I mean, to be honest with you, Tom, before we did this, I had vaguely, as a complete and utter outsider, I just vaguely assumed that you were going to say, it's generally now agreed that Atlantis is Santorini. So, I mean, you will see endless documentaries about it. Yeah. You will get kind of mad documentaries where it's aliens on the History Channel, yeah. but you will get this on Channel 4 and BBC Two. Yeah, this is B- classic BBC Two material. Yeah. Here's a story about Thera, which is the real Atlantis. I think basically the issue, the problem that you have with all the other theories are just as present with this. So okay. the obvious one is Plato's very specific. Atlantis was in the Atlantic. Crete or Thera or wherever is it is not in the Atlantic. Yeah. So that's a major problem. In this, Atlantis is is destroyed by a volcano, mm-hmm. but there's no mention of a volcano in Plato's account. It sinks beneath the sea. Uh, he might have just forgotten the volcano and talked about the tsunami. Right. That so he forgot. So there's no there's no hint of this. Yeah. Okay. In, in, in any account, in, or, or or indeed in any myth. Yeah. So we do have myths yeah. about Crete. You know, we have Theseus, we have the Minotaur, we have King Minos, which gives his name to this this culture. Yeah. But there's no hint at all of Atlantis in any of these myths. Well, I mean, matching it to Plato is mad if we accept your premise that Plato was writing about a political metaphor. Well, we have no evidence at all for anything that links the destruction of, of um, Thera, whenever it is, when is it, kind of middle, middle of the second millennium, mm-hmm. to the time of Plato, which is kind of a thousand years and more after it. Yeah. The, the, how is that story passed down? We have no trace of how it was passed down whatsoever until suddenly it becomes fully formed in Plato's account. Right. There's not some other corpus of legends. Right. And in Plato, Plato himself says, or the various actors within his dialogue say, nobody's heard of this. And Critias, who is telling it, has to come up with a very kind of highfalutin account of how it is that he's heard it when nobody else has heard it. Yeah. That's the whole point. Nobody knows about this story. So how does Plato know about it? Yeah. In the story, Atlantis is 11,500 years old. I don't think Crete is. Okay. Neither Crete nor Santorini remotely resemble Plato's description of it. Okay. Well, you mean, you mean the archaeological findings, don't you? Yeah. There's no canals, no kind of you know, walls going around it in yeah. Minas Tirith style, no elephants. Well, to be fair, the elephants might have not been indigenous. They might have been brought by traders or I'm I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know. It's basically, so, so people call this, you know, uh, pseudo history, pseudo archaeology, all the Atlantis stuff. This is posh pseudo archaeology. Right. In the way that the Cathars having been a, a secret dualist cult is kind of posh. Right. Pseudo history. Okay. Fair enough. But I think it's kind of testimony to the inherent fascination of it. And I think that it, it suggests how even archaeologists, you know, can succumb to the romance of the account. Yeah. And it's that that makes the Graham Hancock series and his books so interesting, I think. Right. So Graham Hancock is basically, his background, he was a journalist, I think, for The Economist mm-hmm. in East Africa. He wrote a lot about the politics of aid, things like that. Then because he was in Ethiopia, he got obsessed by the story that the Ark of the Covenant is kept in a church in Ethiopia. And then from that, he, he moved on to writing about ancient Egypt, the idea that the pyramids at Giza map onto the stars um, that you see in the constellation of Orion. 
Yeah. Um, and it kind of spiraled out from that. I think in your life, you're allowed to come up with one theory of this kind. <laughs> but if you come up with more than one, it discredits the... Well, like Donnelly with Shakespeare was bacon. Yeah, kind of thing. exactly. I mean, I've watched Ancient Apocalypse. You've watched it all through, haven't you? I've watched it all through. And in that, I mean, maybe he's concealing it. Maybe secretly he's a Nazi. I don't know. Maybe he's secretly a white supremacist. But based on those documentaries, the whole thing is about environmentalism. Right. You know, he's he's essentially saying that, um, as far as I could tell, that unless we stop using electricity, we're going to get wiped out by a comet. No one will be able to watch his programs, unfortunately, if that happens. He's um, hostile to European colonialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks, refers to 19th century land grabs. So as far as I can tell, he's not a white supremacist. Right. This is not a program for Himmler to enjoy. But uh, this is very much the tenor of the criticism that archaeologists aim at him. So the idea is that this is a gateway drug that will lead you to white supremacy. Yeah, I've, I've read that essay on the Guardian website, Tom, saying Graham Hancock is, is leading people into, you know, QAnon or something. Yes, uh, and I think that's because the uses that the Nazis put this story to hang so heavily that it's tainted the whole enterprise. And I think also it's the idea that, that there's an anxiety about the idea that, say, American cultures, Native American cultures, derived from new settlers, from colonists from the East. Mm. You know, there's an obvious kind of anxiety about that. Yeah. But, I mean, to be fair to Case and to Donnelly and to people who, who Hancock is clearly drawing this stuff, deriving this stuff from. Yeah. You know, as we've seen, it's, it's slightly more complicated than saying that the Atlanteans were white people. I mean, there's a, there is a kind of element of that. Certainly the Nazis drew on, but it's not exclusively that, yeah. you know, cases saying that the Atlanteans were Native Americans, they were, they were, they were the red race. Yes. And Donnelly is saying that it's a, a kind of melting pot for American, European, African peoples. So, and Graham Hancock is all over, I mean, he's all over the world. He's going to Indonesia or wherever and saying there are traces of superior civilizations here. And yeah. So it's not at all Eurocentric. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's not. I mean, I think he's saying that, that European civilization derives as, as much from the Atlanteans as does American civilization. Yeah. So, yeah, so essentially his argument is the Ignatius Donnelly one, that um, there was a great catastrophe, a highly advanced civilization was wiped out, and that these people then went around and kind of seeded civilization yeah. around the world. And archaeologists obviously absolutely hate this. And I think that one of the reasons why they, they like to cast Graham Hancock as a kind of gateway drug to white supremacy is that it gives them a kind of Indiana Jones vibe. Oh, right, I see. They're taking on Nazis. Right. They are fighting the good fight against the forces of evil. Yes. So rather than excavating pots, (laughs) they're fighting fascism. Right. Or fighting fascism (laughs) by excavating pots. (laughs) Exactly so. But obviously what is really infuriating is the fact that Graham Hancock is clearly spectacularly wrong. Okay. And you can absolutely see it's infuriating. I just thought you were going to say spectacularly rich. <laughs> well, he's, he's, yes, well, he's, he's wrong and rich. <laughs> right. and, and so how infuriating it must be, yeah. you know, to have spent decades mastering, <laughs> mastering the chronology of the late Ice Age and, yeah. you know, having a kind of incredibly detailed knowledge of all these various excavation sites. Phoenician pottery. Or yes. And then this, this guy pops up, has a 10-part series on yeah. Netflix, you know, million-selling book. And Graham Hancock is very, very abusive about them. So he's, he's very into the idea that there's, basically it's big archaeology, that big archaeology has discovered the truth but is concealing it from, you know, from everybody. Presumably he would say, listen to this, that we are the tools of big archaeology, would he? Yes, he would. But Tom, yes, he would. Okay, well, let's, let's see if that doesn't happen because I will stick up for him. Tom, is he wrong? I mean, you, you blithely say Graham Hancock is, is incredibly wrong as well as incredibly rich, but, but what, what persuades you that he is so wrong? You know, convince me. Well, I, th- I think the overwhelming evidence for it is that we have no evidence. Right. <laughs> I mean, there is absolutely zero evidence yeah. for any of this. Okay. Apart from the Atlantis story, which is the initial inspiration for it. And then Hancock is going around the world trying to kind of bundle up any, any hint of myth that suggests that, um, that might corroborate it. So, yeah. for instance, you know, he's citing Zoroastrian myth, which is, isn't written down for centuries and centuries and centuries after, mm-hmm. you know, millennia after. It's as improbable as the idea that Plato is actually transcribing an actual story. Yeah, which seems, when you read the Plato thing, it actually seems blindingly obvious that he's not giving you. Yeah. And, and the thing is that when he goes to these sites, uh, which he claims are, were actually built by people from Atlantis, there's lots of evidence for, say, the hunter-gatherers 
who were living there. Yeah. Lots of archaeological evidence, but there's absolutely no archaeological evidence at all that they were highly superior and sophisticated. The iPhones are nowhere to be seen. There are no iPhones at all. There are no crystals. I mean, there's nothing. Yeah. So there's, there's an absolute absence of any hard archaeological evidence. And I think that the, um, the idea that big archaeology has been secretly hiding it is disproven by the fact that actually the most intriguing site that he visits in the course of his expedition, Gobekli Tepe, which is this site in, in Turkey, which dates back you know, a very, very long way. Um, and it, it, it is really old and really fascinating. And it's kind of from the end of the Ice Age, the beginning of, of the Holocene. Archaeologists, how does he know about it? He knows about it because archaeologists found it yeah. and excavated They're it. They're not covering it up. They're not covering it up. Um, and, and his technique is he will go there and he'll have some hapless you know, curator or somebody yeah. who's in charge of the site who will kind of give the lowdown on it. And then she'll be cut. And suddenly there'll be some bloke, usually with a beard, <laughs> who'll yeah. pop up and he'll be all about the crystals and <laughs> right. star patterns and things like that. Right. And they'll be cut together. So it looks as though the pair of them are telling the same story, which of course they aren't. So right from the beginning, Graham Hancock has been into this idea that the people who escaped from this catastrophe were obsessed by the stars and that there are lessons to be found in the stars that are imprinted in various monuments, say the pyramids and so on. Yeah. And he's all over Gebekli Tepe. And there's particularly, there's a pillar 43, it's called uh, the Vulture Stone, Mm -hmm. a Gebekli Tepe, where he reads all kinds of messages about what the uh, procession of the equinox, which is when the earth wobbles on its axis and where the the sun rises at the spring equinox kind of moves westward gradually over the course of millennia. And then it kind of moves back. Okay. And this happens kind of over the course of, I don't know, 25,000 odd years. And that this is written into all these ancient monuments. But there's a glaring problem with that, which is that it depends on there being an idea of a zodiac, because he's kind of tracing it through the idea of the zodiac. And he's, he's identifying various images on this vulture stone as being portrayals of, of the constellations that form the zodiac. Yeah. But these constellations originate with Babylon. So there's no way that, right. you know, they didn't know the Babylonian zodiac. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, Really obvious. So all of those reasons, I think, suggest that it's improbable. There's a further problem, which is what exactly is the catastrophe? Is it the melting of the ice caps? Is it the fact it's that... It's a comet, uh, isn't it? It's a comet. I read that out at the beginning of episode one. Right. So this is his latest iteration. But before that, he thought that it had it was a continent that had moved and ended up under Antarctica. Okay. And then it got proved that actually Antarctica has been under ice for, for millions of years. So that couldn't be possible. Yeah. So I think that's all. I think it's all clearly mad. But having said that, at the end of last episode, I said that there were areas in which I think Hancock is actually fascinating. Yeah. And I think that there are aspects of his case that do get us back, ironically, to the mindset of Plato. Ooh, that's a comparison I didn't expect. Well, so, so we, this idea of the comet, this is from the Timaeus. In the Timaeus, the Egyptian priests tell Solon, his, their Athenian visitor, mm-hmm. that um, Phaeton in his chariot going down, you know, driving the chariot of the sun, burning the earth. Um, that this is actually a folk memory of a comet. So Graham Hancock is kind of being true to the story there, I think. Right. And I think also Plato's great idea was, you know, in, certainly in the Republic, if not in the Timaeus, was this idea of there being philosopher kings, mm-hmm. people of such transcendent wisdom that they should have the guidance of people who are more ignorant and less suited looking after themselves. His idea, which derives from Donnelly, that civilization originates with kind of nautical philosopher kings, philosopher kings who are going around on the ships and scattering the seed of civilization. Again, that's quite platonic. And I do think that one of the problems that historians, archaeologists, whatever, of very ancient cultures face is that scholarship is founded on kind of traditions of objectivity Mm. and scrupulous study that can remove the people who do it from the kind of the philosophical or the religious or the cultural, the mythological context in which these stories may have originated. And that's why the kind of the, the, the very mad theories often they can get you back closer to the original spirit in which these myths were told often than the much more scrupulous, objective, accurate scholarly accounts do. And that's a kind of strange paradox there. Yeah. Plato and his original audience would have relished magicians of the gods and yes, ancient I think apocalypse, so. whereas they would have found the bulletin of, you know, archaeological yes. studies very tedious and I think they would have found it much easier to to recognise Graham Hancock's ancient apocalypse right <laughs> as as being true to to the story than yes exactly as you say the kind of the bulletin for mid-east prehistory archaeology well 
that is not the conclusion I expected you to reach. That basically you spent two hours proving that Plato would have really enjoyed Graham Hancock's <laughs> series. On well, I'm not saying that. I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I, I doubt Plato would have had time for, for Netflix, do you think? Uh, he'd have been da- down the gymnasium talking about he'd have been down at the gym down in the academy <laughs> <laughs> hanging out with the lads maybe he would yeah maybe he would but, uh, talking about you know ideal forms and yeah. the ideal state and all that kind of stuff I suppose he would immortality of the soul I suppose he would but even Plato would have relaxed wouldn't he he might have said yeah we'd have had a symposium maybe he'd have invited Graham uh, uh, Hancock for, for a symposium for Graham Hancock ground for a Netflix and chill that's what uh, Plato <laughs> would have been <laughs> would have been all about so i mean do you think the atlantis thing will just has it become such a joke now no offense to graham hancock but has it become such a joke that it's basically it doesn't have any legs and it and it's a it was a 19th and 20th century obsession a bit like the yeti or something or shangri-la yeah i think so and it, I think, people aren't gonna be talking about it in the 23rd well, century are they well i mean the graham hancock's series did fantastically well I mean, there's clearly an appetite for it. It's very well made, isn't it? Lots of people saying, oh, well, you must have something there. Do they say that, though? Or do they say this was immensely entertaining tosh? Not unlike the rest is history. No, because he's he's going on um, the Joe Rogan show. I saw that. To debate it with um, an archaeologist with the splendid name of Flint Dibble. <laughs> to, uh, so, That's a brilliant example of nominative determinism, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. Surely Flint Dibble is a particular kind of incredibly boring artifact you find in a drawer at a local history museum i don't know anyway well but, but it'll be very exciting so i guess lots of people listen to joe rogan don't they yeah even more than listen to the rest of the history and um if graham hancock is able to to hold his own against flint flint dibble and <laughs> well, um but they, they maybe who knows they maybe he'll qualify for a slot on our podcast tom who knows <laughs> we get them both couldn't we good let's get them all all right. Yeah. On that bombshell, Tom, that was absolutely fascinating. Very entertaining. It was, uh, it was genuinely a, a really interesting mirror onto sort of people's changing obsessions. With I think also kind of quite interesting because our pre- you know the, before we did the Atlantis ones, we had Peter Frankopan on talking about climate apocalypse. Yeah. So um, that's something we didn't discuss. Yeah. Was the way in which maybe we're getting back to the original point of the story that Plato told that Atlantis is a, is a parable about hubris and, and nemesis. Yes. It kind of maps quite well onto the environmental anxieties about the fact that we've basically we've just become too successful as a species, that we're being destroyed by our own technology. All right. On that bombshell, or rather on that tsunami, uh, we <laughs> say um, thank you for listening to The Rest is History, and we'll be back next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.